scriptures can communicate different meetings at different times in our life according to our needs. A scripture that we may have read many times can take on nuances, nuances of meaning that are refreshing and insightful when we face a new challenge in life. When I stumble, I will keep getting up relying on the grace and enabling power of Jesus Christ. I will stay in my covenant with him and work through my questions by study of God's word, by faith, and with the help of the Holy Ghost whose guidance I trust. I will seek his spirit every day by doing the small and simple things. This is my path of discipleship. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me. So for this one, we have Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapters 4 and 5. And this is where we really kind of get into Christ going into the wilderness and being tempted. And you commented in the last one that this was basically immediately after his baptism. That it was almost like he was baptized, the Spirit came and took him, encouraged him to go out into the wilderness. It's interesting because we, we talk about this 40 days in the wilderness. I, once again, this is a biblical time frame thing where I don't know that it was necessarily the time frame of 40 days, but it was a long time. He went out there. He had a lot to do. In Jesus the Christ, James E. Talmadge is writing about this, and he said, the circumstances attending this time of exile and test must have been related by Jesus himself, for of other human witnesses, there were none. The recorded narratives deal principally with events marking those marking the close of the 40-day period, but considered in their entirety, they, they place beyond doubt the fact that there was that the fact that the season was one of fasting and prayer. Christ's realization that he was chosen and foreordained Messiah came to him gradually, as shown by his words to his mother on the occasion of the memorable interview with the doctors in the temple courts. He knew, but when but a boy of 12 years, that in a particular and personal sense, he was the son of God. Yet it is evident that a comprehension of the full purport of his earthly mission developed within him only as he progressed step by step in wisdom. His acknowledgement by the Father and the continued companionship of the Holy Ghost, he opened his soul to the glorious fact of his divinity. He had much to think about, much that demanded prayer and the communion with God that prayer alone could ensure. Throughout the period of re retirement, he ate not but chose to fast that his mortal body might be more completely and be subjected to his divine spirit. That was pretty eye-opening for me to think of it as he knew he was the son of God. He kind of had this idea of it being that being the case, but his like the full magnitude of what he was being asked to do maybe hadn't dawned on him immediately. There was something that he learned little by little as life went on. And then when this happened and it was like, I've been baptized. I heard the voice of my father. The Holy Ghost is with me. He needed to take time to kind of come to terms with it, focus himself and, um, that fasting and prayer was what made that happen. It was a separation from society for a little bit to kind of say, okay, this is real and this is starting now, you know? 
I have all this that I've felt my whole life, it's now going to come to fruition. Yeah, I, I don't know how the Lord knew who he was, <laughs> how that came about. But even we, we read before, even when he was, I think at the age of 12, when they took him to the temple to be presented, he was there teaching at the temple, you know. And I find that very interesting. And, and there's some Joseph Smith translation changes to some of these verses. It, it may, Especially when Satan comes to tempt him, it makes it sound like Satan takes him and tempts him. And it's more like he was where he was and Satan came to tempt him. He didn't have power to take the Savior to the pinnacle of the temple or to take him, you know, to, to those things. And it was interesting because Elder Bednar, he did um, he did a question and answer sessions on Instagram this last week. It's really good. But he brings up this exact example of Christ being tempted in the wilderness. And he says the kind of the root of all the temptations was do these things for yourself you know you're hungry you feed yourself you're 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 what kind of cool miracle if you toss yourself down and the angels can't choose how much praise you would get and uh all these riches of the earth i'll give to you and it's like well he's the one that created the entire earth you know so so do it for yourself and i find that when christ rebukes satan you know, the first one is, he says, it is written that man should not live by bread alone. And then when Satan tempts him with all the kingdoms of the world and wealth, Jesus answered, you know, get thee behind me, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shall thou serve. And then the next one, if ye are the Son of God, cast yourself down. And then Jesus said unto him, that shall not tempt the Lord. And I don't remember where I heard this, but I really liked it and it stuck with me for a long time. But Christ used the scriptures to re refute Satan. You know, it is written. It is written. And it's kind of maybe a pattern or an example to us that as we draw ourselves to the scriptures and read them and become familiar with them, they will give us the guidance we need to be able to distinguish when a temptation is asking us to do things for ourselves or to do it because God wants us to. And nothing Satan brought to him was inherently wrong. Like it, he, it wasn't go, go, you know, run over these people with your car or, <laughs> or go, go steal this from this bank. But it was all not for God's glory, you know. And it was, and it was also a questioning of, if you do it because I tell you to, then kind of you're kind of under my domain. And the Savior is not anything comparable to Satan. He he is the most, you know, he's powerful. He is the Son of God, you know. Um, and he's not doing it for the riches of the world or for to be seen of men, you know, as we read later on. And then I find it really interesting <clears throat> that he goes to the synagogue after that to teach and he 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 gets up to read out of the scriptures and he reads in verse 18 uh, of Luke 4 he says and the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind and to set the set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the, the acceptable year of the Lord and he closed the book and he sat down 
and then everyone looked upon him because that's what the the leader would do is he would sit down and then explain the scriptures and all he said to them was this day the scriptures fulfilled in your ears meaning i am he whom the scripture said i was i've come to preach the gospel to the poor to heal the brokenhearted and that's a really big contrast to what satan wanted him to do you know yeah i want you to kind of do these things for yourself kind of these pretty showy cool things and the lord does tremendous miracles he turns water into wine the basket of fishes and, and loaves of bread you know he multiplies it to fill entire he does wonderful things but it's because he is here to preach the gospel to the poor to heal the brokenhearted to preach deliverance you know because he's doing it because it's his mission to be the savior of everybody not it's his mission to go gather instagram likes or to gather followers just for his own ego or or you know Anyway. Yeah, well, when he said that, um, like the in verse 18, he's reading from the book of Esaias and they brought it to him. And there's a, a thing I, I can't find it now, but they were basically saying he may not have known that in that day in the synagogue, they were going to be reading that section. But it just kind of goes to show that he was doing things at the right time and in the right place, received that book, read the part from it that he wanted to read that spoke about him and then said you know this day the scripture is fulfilled in your ears and people were like is this not joseph's son like they knew him and it was probably a bit of like a <laughs> okay who do you think you are man you know and you're not one of our big time rabbis you're not one of the pharisees or sadducees that know the law inside and out you're joseph's son but then he was like, okay, yeah, you know, I'm I'm expecting to hear all of this. Then he goes out and starts healing people, casting out devils, healing many people. And it's like, I'm telling you this not because I want to show off. I'm telling you this because this is the truth. This is what's happening. This is the day that of the scripture being fulfilled. And then, of course, he calls his his disciples, his apostles along the way, finding them. Most of them were fishermen, mending nets, and, you know, talking about telling them to come and follow him, and then they drop their stuff immediately and go. And once again, like, I don't know if they knew of him, if they knew him as Joseph's son, if they just felt this is what I should do. But it's all, always been used as an example of when the Lord tells you to, to follow or to stop doing what you're doing and do something else, not to hesitate, but to follow right away. Um, one of the... The healings that I love the most is, let's see, it's the man with palsy in Luke 5, and it says that he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed, and it came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And behold, men brought in a bed of a, bed, a man which was taken with a palsy, and they sought means to bring him in to lay him before him. And when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and let him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said unto them, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And there's this, there's this part in me that hears that story, and it's like, what incredible faith that these individuals had in this new guy who was going around healing people. 
that they were like, okay, we got to we got to take our friend there, our friend or family member or whoever he was. We got it. We got to take him to be healed. They couldn't get in and they very well could have been like, listen, uh, we'll probably have to do this another time because it's really crowded in there and we can't get to him and he's busy and da, 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 da. no. Instead, they were like, let's go through the roof. <laughs> you know? Let's make a hole in the roof and lower him down to him. And it's like, how many times do we find little oppositions to, you know, oh, I don't have a lot of time to go ministering. Oh, I don't have a lot of time for, for uh, studying my scriptures today. You know, there's lots of reasons to stop and to feel like I've done enough. I've made a good effort and it just didn't work out this time. Instead of saying, OK, fine, I'll go through the dang roof to get to him. And it just shows like if you really want to get to the Savior, if you really want to learn, if you really want to be like him, sometimes you have to go through the roof. Sometimes you have to go the extra mile to make it happen. It's not all going to just be super easy. And you know that that one always speaks to me because it's like these guys were not going to be denied and their friend was healed and i always think wow just the determination to follow the savior should be like that in all of us yeah that's a really good point because sometimes we think if it's meant to be then it'll just happen you know? right <laughs> or it's predestined or, or whatever and we almost kind of get superstitious about things and, you know, kind of tell that to Nephi, retrieving the plates. <laughs> he was on the Lord's errand, but it took three different tries. But part of those tries, it was a learning experience. It's not because the Savior here is unreachable or too busy. That effort is for us to learn. When the Lord later invites us to seek after righteousness, thirst after righteousness, seek and you shall find, knock and you shall be open unto you. Or even the parable of the great price where it's like, uh, or the parable of the lost ring. I think it's the lost ring where it's, you know, if if you, you, you lost this ring and you get all your neighbors and you go look for it and you look all over the place until you find it, you know? And then he says, the kingdom of heaven is a lot like that, which which is something to do with our effort, our agency, that there's just something about our disposition to continue to push forward, which we would call faith, Right. Faith is more than just the hope that the good thing will happen until it gets a little bit hard and then I cast it away and I say, this must not be true, you know. No, if faith is we're going to go through the roof if we have to because it's we believe in the Savior. It's our ability to get to him that is up to us. Like we got to do whatever we need to, you know. Yeah, and then going back, looking at all these healings that he starts to do, and going back to the temptation from Satan, um, this is also from Jesus the Christ by James E. Talmadge. Um, he's, this is one of my favorite books ever. It's kind of a thick read sometimes, but it's very good at describing uh, the story behind the story. And he's talking about when Satan appears to him. He says, hungry as Jesus was, there was a temptation in Satan's word even greater than that embodied in the suggestion that he provide food for his famishing body. The temptation was to put proof the possible doubt implied by the tempters if, because he says, if thou be the son of God, command that stones should be made bread, right? The eternal father had proclaimed Jesus as his son. The devil tried to make the son doubt that divine relationship. Why not prove the father's interest in his son at a moment of dire necessity? Was it proper that the son of God should go hungry? Had the father so soon forgotten as to leave his beloved son thus to suffer? 
Was it not reasonable that Jesus, faint from a long absence, should provide for himself, and so and particularly so since he could provide, and that by a word of command, if the voice heard at his baptism was that of the Eternal Father, if thou be in reality the Son of God, demonstrate thy power, and at that time satisfy thy hunger, which was the purport of the diabolical suggestion. To have yielded would have been to manifest positive doubt of the Father's acknowledgement. Now he goes on. Moreover, the superior power that Jesus possessed had not been given to him for personal gratification, but for service to others. He was to experience all the trials of mortality. Another man, as hungry as he, could not provide for himself by a miracle. And though by miracle such a one might be fed, the miraculous supply would have been to be given, not provided by himself. It was a necessary result of our Lord's dual nature, comprising the attributes of both God and man, that he should endure and suffer as a mortal, while possessing at all times the ability to invoke the power of his own godhood, by which all bodily needs could be supplied or overcome. That to me shows not only in him his mastery of himself, saying, I could feed myself at any time. I could make my life full of discomforts and riches. But that power is not what this is for. And for me to understand what everyone is going through, for me to ever be able to purport that I understand what it means to suffer, I need to allow myself to suffer. And he did on a regular basis, starting at that fasting and temptation and going all the way through the atonement. He allowed himself to suffer his whole life. He never granted himself any like, you know what, I could use uh, this and this and that. I got the power to, hey, apostles, let's take a day off and, you know, pizza's on me. No, it was like, we're going to know what this feels like. I want to know. I want to be able to say this power was used for others. Every time he does these healings and these miracles, it's to benefit others and to testify of God. Yeah. And when even when the Pharisees, after he healed that guy with the palsies, are like, who is this who speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone, right? He's like, what, what problem do you have with this? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Here, rise up and walk. Then the guy does. And he's like, see? And it's not to be like, see how amazing I am? See how incredible I am? It's to say, this is the power of God. It's here. Now, we often think about how Christ suffered so he would know what we're like. Yeah. You know, in the atonement, so he gets to know all of our flaws, problems, infirmities. And the Book of Mormon tells us, but I wonder if there's also things he suffered that we never would know that it was yeah. just for him, you know. In that situation, like you mentioned, he had the ability to change everything, but it was his desire to well, probably respect the agency of others, and also to be obedient to his father, you know, to submit yourself to the will of the father, begins to mean more than. I'm just going to do what he's told me to do. I'm just here to check box, check some boxes on my way to eternity, right? No, it, it, was, it was different, you know, and it's something just like the atonement is something we think about. To understand the atonement, we should always ponder the scriptures, all of them, all the scriptures, because they're all about Christ and how he has interacted from the beginning with Adam to today with us, this topic of the Savior and his ministry, it's not, sometimes we think his ministry talks specifically to a time period in Jerusalem. And it's kind of like his ministry has been always. The pre-earth Messiah, you know, the, the mortal Messiah and the, and the 
in the millennial millennium. You know, the 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 his ministry is not something that has begun or ended. It just is his ministry always. One of my favorite scriptures is in Luke five, when he is with the apostles, and I think it's on the Sabbath, and it's fascinating. It's at the end of the ver- uh, chapter, verse thirty-three, uh, and they they come up to him, the publicans and the Pharisees. Uh, oh, let's start with verse thirty. The scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, "Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners?" And Jesus answered unto them, "They that are whole." need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. And they said unto him, why do your disciples, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, the disciples of the Pharisees, but thine eat and drink. And he said unto them, can ye make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? And so it's really interesting because they're trying to catch him and they're always trying to cross his words and try to catch him. And even though they don't follow John the Baptist, they try to use him as an example of, well, even John's followers observe our laws and and, and they'll fast. And then why not yours? Even our followers fast, why not yours? And the Lord is kind of telling them, you fast to be close to the Savior. Those that are with the Savior are already with him. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like... (laughs) You carry a cell phone so you can call your wife. But if your wife is with you, do you need to carry the cell phone? <laughs> right? Right. It's kind of like that kind of logic. And and then um and then he, 36 is the one where he said uh, also, he spake also parables unto them. No man putteth a piece of a new garment upon the old, if otherwise they both the then both the new maketh a rent and the piece which was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old and then he says no man putteth new wine in old bottles else the new wine will burst the old bottles and be spilled and the bottles shall perish the new wine must be put in new bottles and both are preserved no man also having drunk the old wine straightway desires new for he saith the old is better so what he's trying to tell them is i have come to change the law of moses i i it's like he's saying i come with new wine and you don't put it in old bottles and there was this great explanation I don't know it perfectly, but the whole wine, how it ferments in the bottles, it also weakens the bottle. And it it will only last for that fermentation cycle. So if you were to put the new wine in the old bottles, it would break the bottles. And, and the way that they talk about it and do it. So what he's trying to say is, you know, he's bringing the gospel law. He's bringing the law of Christ. And that's why he spends the majority of his time teaching them and they'll they'll throw at him some law on Moses and he'll show them how that law of Moses speaks to a principle that lives inside the gospel law. He doesn't refute it like, oh, they were wrong to say that. No, he says, what's the greatest commandment of the law? And they're trying to find because there was never spelled out which one was the greatest. But the Lord says, isn't the law given so you love God with all your heart? And then likewise, love your neighbor as yourself. In that principle is all the laws are governed underneath that umbrella. And that's why they're like blown away and they can't outmaneuver him because he's the one that wrote all these laws to begin with, <laughs> you know? And and so anyway, I, I, I really like that. I like how 
he doesn't really hesitate once once the ministry actually officially begins you know like people basically say after his baptism is when he's started um there's no there's not really any waiting around he gets right to it declaring himself the messiah showing them what the power of god can do answering all their questions as they come and try and stump him like this must have been I'd like to be in the in the meetings of the Pharisees when they all got together and they're like, so what do we have for this week? And they're like, what do we do about this guy? Because he's coming around and people are starting to follow him and we've tried to stump him, but he always has these really crazy answers for our questions. Like, what do we do? I'd just like to be in that room to see, like, what were they <laughs> How frustrated were they? How, what experience were they having? Because he was kind of saying some radical ideas, right? This law of Moses they've lived with for generations and that they adhere to so strictly that some of them had it attached to their foreheads by ribbons, you know, that now he's saying, yeah, we're not going to do that like that anymore. We're, that, that's the principle of it. But here's why. And here's what we're going to do that is different. You know, and it really threw people for a loop because it was a very radical view of how the law should be lived and how things should go. And it did not sit well with them. Number one, because they knew that it would mean that their role in society would be diminished. But also just having adhered to a law for so many generations and then for someone to come in and say, I'm the Messiah and the following things will change. Understandably, they were they were left wondering what the heck is going on. But I think that was good. I think that's what it was meant to do. It was meant to make people start questioning, you know, why do we do this this way when the principle is this, right? Yeah, and and we know that the law of Moses was given as a preparatory step right. to the gospel law of Jesus Christ. And we also know that Moses was given the law, but the people weren't ready. And so they he they needed a law of strict observances because they were so stiff-necked, I think the scripture says, or stubborn, maybe, set in their ways, I don't know. But we do know that the law of Moses to those who had a, a good heart, that were humble, that, brought, that, that would look at the symbolism and look at its meaning more than the external things about it, did and were brought to Christ. And did get testimonies. You know, we started, you know, at the beginning of one of these lessons, we talked about the shepherds, we talked about Simeon, we talked about Anna, we talked about the wise men. You know, there was enough given to them to know the Savior and recognize him and be prepared for him. And I think we live in a similar time where we have the law given, yet do we complain every time the church releases something? Do we go quickly to the blogs to read what people say? Or do we know in our hearts because we have the Holy Ghost what the Lord is trying to do and where these steps are taking us, you know, that we're able to accept, that we're able to jump in and help wherever we can. Or is it always turning to some debate cycle about and, and try to mingle our philosophy with the philosophy of the world for, you know, to try to make sense of, of what the Lord has given to us. And we end up in a place where we may be the Pharisees and Sadducees of our day, you know. And that's, to me, what I love about these scriptures is, is what they're pointing out is not something far-fetched and something distant. It's something very near to our time and they were written for us to know we're in a phase right now preparing for to recognize the Savior. 
whether he's coming tomorrow, 50 years, in a way, not to offend, but it's kind of irrelevant. The Savior, we need to know him now as the shepherds and Simeon and Anna and the wise men knew him. You know, and whether we come to see him physically or we go to see him at the end of our lives, our testimony that we've built and our experiences is what matters that we can say and recognize him and say, I'm a disciple and I've done the best I can. Will you help me? You know, and, and that's kind of where, where we are all at right now. Um, I just find it so interesting that that these stories and the, and the Pharisees, because what how they act and what they say is not far from us. You know? Yeah. And, and it's kind of a warning, like, let's not be them. Let's be these other individuals, you know, and even though there was that Simeon and Anna and the wise men had a lesser law. That didn't hold them back. They have every blessing and faithfulness. And sometimes we are seeking higher and more. I can't wait till more scriptures are given. I can't wait for this. Can't wait till they reveal this. And, and it's like you're heading down the Pharisee path <laughs> where you think you have it. And the Lord is saying, recognize me now. Don't worry about recognizing me in these hypothetical situations. You know, and, and that's the thing is the Lord is alive ministering to us right now. And do can we recognize him? Yeah. And using our testimony to not be deterred, to not be diminished, to go through the roof if we have to, to get to him. You know, I, I, I always think about that whenever this lesson comes around or the topic comes around. Always think about how little things will get in the way. Uh, don't don't be deterred. Don't let little things get in the way of your progress. Do whatever it takes. In our relationship with the Savior, he looks on the heart and is no respecter of persons. Consider how he chose his apostles. He didn't pay attention to status or wealth. He invites us to follow him, and I believe he reassures us that we belong with him. I testify that we grow in our discipleship when we exercise faith in the Lord during difficult times. As we do so, he will mercifully strengthen us and help us carry our burdens. The Savior knows your struggles in detail. He knows your great potential to grow in faith, hope, and charity. The commandments and covenants he offers you are not tests to control you. They are a gift to lift you towards receiving all the gifts of God and to returning home to your Heavenly Father and the Lord who love you.